listening to Mosaic, a Jesus-centered communities podcast. Our goal is to help people experience a Jesus-centered life. You can find out more about us at welcometomosaic.info. We invite you to subscribe to this podcast as well as rate and review it so others can hear it as well. Enjoy the message. Uh, welcome here, everyone here and everyone joining us online. Um, I would like to say I love the Christmas holidays. One of the reasons I love Christmas is by far the traditions. Um, I realize every family is different. Uh, my family, we tend to lean on the laid-back side of Christmas traditions. Uh, you'd be very rare to find us not wearing like sweatpants and sweats. Our Christmas tradition on Christmas Eve is we'll all gather on the couch, watch Christmas vacation, bunch of blankets, bunch of eggnog, and then we'll go to bed pretty early at like nine o'clock. Uh, I think it's sort of benefit from my parents because we were those kids that would wake up early, like 6, 6.30, even when we were like 16, 17, 18, we still liked waking up early to go open presents. But then I learned that families do things differently. Uh, I married, I got married, and I learned, oh, not everyone does the same way my family does it. Uh, My wife grew up in Austin, Texas. I grew up in a small town called Belton, Texas. And there's not a lot to do in Belton, so her family would do kind of more formal things. They would go to a nice hotel, they had a nice big gingerbread, um, like, show thing at this hotel they would go to. They'd dress up, they would set the table, a lot more, it was just as festive as mine, but it was a little more formal. I'm sure all of you who've been here and got married, you kind of learned that different families do different things. And when you have your own family, you form your own traditions. But for me, it was another layer of complication because I married into a very different family than mine. Uh, I'm from middle Texas. The most diverse part of my family is my dad grew up in upstate New York. Uh, My wife's side of the family, majority of them are from Brazil. Uh, So I'll I'll show you the difference. So here's a picture of my family. This is on our wedding. Uh, there's maybe six people there. You have my brother, my grandparents, and my siblings. And this is kind of the family picture that we took. Then you meet my wife's family, and it's about 15, 16 people. And this is not even all of them. There's like, I think, five or six more who weren't able to make it because they were uh, across the ocean. Um, it was a big, big culture shock. The first time I met all these people, it's about a little over four years ago, during the World Cup. And if you've never watched Brazil play in the World Cup with a bunch of Brazilians, you need to do it. So the first time I met all those people was at this. They didn't care much about me at that point. I was just a poor little white guy, and they were screaming at the TV. Uh, But it was so much fun. But I learned that different cultures do things different ways. There's some sociologists out there who kind of explain it in this way. There's cold climate cultures, and there's hot climate cultures. So mine is a cold climate culture. We tend to fall more in the uh, logistical schedule uh, type of things. Like my family, we still buy tickets to go on Christmas every year. We have reserved seats. We still show up 30 minutes early just to make sure we get our reserved seats on time. My wife's side of the family, they're a hot climate culture. These hot climate cultures, relationships are key. The schedule isn't what matters. The event and the people who are there are what matters. I'll give you a few examples to kind of put it in uh, clear things for you. Let's, let's look at cooking. So my family, recipe, you live and die by the recipe. If it says you need a white onion, you better have a white onion. Not a yellow onion, not a red onion, no. If it says it takes 30 minutes, it'll take 30 minutes. 
But when my mother-in-law comes in town, she can come in our pantry, we'll have a can of beans, a slice of bread, and maybe some leftover chicken, and she'll create a meal fit for a king. I love when Z comes into town, because she cooks everything, and it's so good. Here's another example. Phone calls. Something super simple, but a huge difference. In my family, you call someone to relay information. It maybe lasts five, ten minutes, but it's like, here's what you need to know, here's what we're doing, good, sweet, love you, bye. My, my granddad will call me like once every two weeks, and it'll be about a five-minute conversation, and it's just checking in, saying, I love you, boom, done. My wife's side of the family, when they call, you better sit down for at least 45 or 60 minutes. And they're not calling to give information, they're just calling to check up, see how you're doing. Relationships are key. It was very, the first like six months of my marriage, anytime my wife would call me after work, my first response was, hey, what's wrong? Like, what's going on? And she's like, why do you keep saying that? I'm like, you're calling me because you need to tell me something or I need to get something. She's like, I'm just driving home from work. I just want to see how your day was. So it was different cultures do things different ways. And these are in very general terms. They're not universal. But I bring them up because we're about to dive into Advent season. We're about to dive into scripture. It's a different culture, a different time than we are here today. The theme we have for this Advent season is two cities. You have Bethlehem and 21st century, century Denver. They expressed things, they saw things, they viewed things in different ways than we did. Today we're going to talk about a word that carries some preconceived baggage with it. It's this idea of peace. A simple five-letter word, peace. We see it different than the way the writers saw it. My understanding of families and the traditions grew deeper and wider being exposed to this different culture. And my hope is that tonight you'll benefit from that saying by digging in to what they said, they meant when they said the word peace. Like most words we say in church, we take for granted kind of the simplicity of them after hearing them for years and years and years. Take the term Advent. It means anticipation. Like Jaden and Jada said earlier today, we're anticipating things to come, not just Christmas gifts under the tree, but we're anticipating in the past of Jesus coming through Mary, the presence of Jesus coming into our own hearts, and the future coming of Jesus to be. All that in a simple word. In a biblical context, these are deep and beautiful and powerful ideas, and peace is just like that. Peace kind of, we, we understand peace kind of in our culture pretty well. We think it just means no war, and that's partly right. But in a season of Advent, the peace that the Advent or the biblical writers use is so much deeper, so much more beautiful than just a lack of conflict and fighting. A writer put it this way, and I loved it. He said, detached from its New Testament content, the word of peace is sort of a spiritual marshmallow, full of softness and sweetness, but without much actual substance. Today, I hope we can add some substance to that word. So today, I hope we can answer this question, is what is the peace that the biblical writers wrote? And how does that connect to this person of Jesus that we are anticipating. We hear in church often that God brings peace, that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. You will find peace and rest in God. But why do we say these things? Are we really just saying that there will be no more conflict? 
Is peace during the holidays just mean a smooth family gathering or no bickering? Are we all called to, to do is just not fight with people or argue with people? The peace that is offered that we are anticipating here today is so much more than this. We, will see, we see these images and statements are not built on only hopeful speculation, but, on, but based on God's very character and identity. There's a reason Paul writes, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. He's building off thousands of years of meditations and observations about God's character, that the reason we're able to anticipate this peace that Paul says is transcends all understanding is because it is so ingrained into the very fabric of who God is. So let us delve a little bit deeper into this idea of peace. One of the first tasks we need to do is say, okay, what word are we actually talking about? You might not think about it too often, but the Old Testament and New Testament, they weren't written in English. The King James Version is not the final version or original version of the Bible, but it was written in a different language and different culture and different like, heritage, you could say. And one of the flaws of translations, we kind of lose some of the beauty of words that go, that go with them. Paul, a first century Roman Jew, his idea of peace was heavily influenced by the culture he was with. So when he says this peace transcends all understanding, he is drawing on this word, shalom. Can you all say that with me? Shalom. Pretty easy. The beauty of the word shalom is it has a variety of uses. And most common is peace, lack of war, no conflicts. You can hear our Jewish friends on a weekly basis kind of say this during Sabbath, greeting each other with the phrase, Shabbat Shalom. A reminder for them to have a peaceful rest. But its meaning is so much more than just no conflict. By the time you leave today, I want you to understand that it's just not the kind of peace that God wants. It's a peace about wholeness, completeness, reconciliation, and so much more kind of hard to put on one of those cute little advent candles, all those things. So just use peace. So if peace, if Paul calls us to allow the peace of God to guard our hearts and minds, what does that look like? So we're going to delve, we're going to go all the way back to the very beginning where it all began and look at Genesis 1, 1, 2. So it says here, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The spirit of God was hovering over this formless and void that was. The Hebrew sounds very ominous, the tohu, evohu. The spirit of God hovering over this represents the chaos that was before the God of creation made things new. This chaos is represented by formless, by void, even as a deep or an abyss. This image of a raging storm comes to mind. With nothing but chaos for all the eyes to see, just imagine out in the open ocean, a storm coming through waves or coming side to side, hundreds of feet high, a vast ocean of raging wind and disorder with no hope of survival. Before there was creation, there was nothing but this chaos. The writers, they were not using this image flippantly. 
For our Jewish friends, deep, dark waters was the representation of evil and chaos itself. You know that strange story in the Gospels of Jesus healing a man of a demon, and he, puts, he sends it over into a, a herd of pigs, and those pigs run off into, into the waters? That's purposeful. It was building on that image that deep, dark waters were the entrance into evil itself. It is no coincidence that the Bible starts and shows the Spirit of God hovering over what could be the very embodiment of disorder itself. But the text is clear from the beginning that God is present. From the very beginning, we're seeing an aspect of God's character. He's being placed in stark contrast of chaos. So this brings me to my first deeper level of shalom. The presence of chaos does not mean the absence of peace. The presence of chaos does not mean the absence of peace. As we're going into the Christmas season and families are traveling across country, you're trying to find that perfect gift for that person. Just because there is chaos, movement, and uncertainty in your day-to-day does not mean that peace is absent. One of the fallacies I think we fall in in our culture is this kind of fallacy of duality. Think the yin and the yang, up and down, sweet and salty for you Star Wars fans, the light side and the dark side. That there is good and that there is evil, and there are these two fighting sides stuck in this everlasting battle with one another. One is no more powerful than the other. They are locked in this kind of eternal tug of war. And while I do not often name this, we bring this mentality into the stories of Scripture. We see God hovering over the chaos and the void, and we see the evil. We think that God and Satan and evil are locked in this never-ending battle, trading punches, one is not being the other, that God is good and Satan is evil, and they are stuck in this tug-of-war. Nothing can be farther from the truth, though. The peace of God was present in the chaos, overpowered the chaos, and turned it into something beautiful. The creator God took the formless abyss and turned it into the beautiful Garden of Eden, a place defined by harmony, by wholeness, and by beauty. A thought many of us have is, I cannot be peaceful until all the chaos in my life is removed. When my son or daughter finally stops rebelling, then I can have peace. When that major project is done and my boss is finally off my back, then I can have peace. When I reach Saturday, then I can have peace. All of this is our own attempt to try to take this seemingly formless chaos of our lives and reorder it into our own version of peace instead of bringing that chaos of our lives into the hands of the creator God who can take it and turn it into something beautiful. Reordering our own chaos will only form more and more chaos. We see even in the garden when Adam and Eve were tempted to take control for themselves, to go and eat the fruit, the shalom that God had freely given to them became perverted and tarnished. They forgot that his peace will always be greater than the peace that we can order on our own. And because of that mistake, we move forward into the story of figuring out, okay, what does this word shalom mean? What does peace truly mean to the biblical writers? And we move forward into the law, a very exciting topic, I know, for all of you. 
If you, we've said a few times here, uh, if you don't remember, there's over 600 laws in the first five books of the Bible. It's kind of, if you're ever doing that year reading plan of the Bible, it's typically around that point where you, like, it's not for me, not Deuteronomy and Leviticus, where it gets like, don't do this, do that, or the genealogies. I've been there. This is a place of grace. It's okay. But these laws are kind of formed in a very, in a general way, kind of follow this pattern of vertical and horizontal. The vertical between man and God, and the horizontal between man and man. If you have free time, go read the Ten Commandments. You'll kind of see this trend. The first five are about the, the vertical, worship the God alone, don't take the Lord's name in vain, and then the horizontal, don't murder, don't steal, don't covet. Kind of this up and upward and side to side way. And the idea of shalom comes up countless times throughout all these laws. Towards God, we kind of see it in this thing called peace offering. You kind of go to the temple, and when you're in right relationship with the Lord, you go give an offering. And there are a handful of laws that look like this. And they, I have an example here in Exodus 22, 9. So it says this. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing of which one says, this is it. The case of both parties shall come before God. The one, who sh- shall, the one whom God condemns shall, double to, shall pay double to God his neighbor. Remember thinking to yourself, Taylor, there's no peace in there. There's nothing to do with peace in that verse. And you are right on the surface, but I remember I said in the beginning that shalom is an old Hebrew word. In that translation, we kind of lose some of the beauty and some of the depth of these words. So in this verse, shalom is translated as to pay. That brings us to our next point of God's peace and shalom. God's peace is found when relationships are reconciled. God's peace is found when relationships are reconciled. There are numerous examples of this law in the Old Testament. Uh, They all center around this idea of reconciliation. That was that where God's shalom is found, relationships are made right. For Jewish people, they're a very agricultural uh, society. So a lot of these kind of centered around livestock laws. So if I went out and stole your ox, I was meant to make peace with you and repay you. Or even if I left my gate open and my ox ran out and trampled through your fields and ruined your harvest or even harmed or killed one of your livestock, I was meant to reconcile with you and pay you back. Even in laws of war, we see this. That after they were fighting with another tribe or nation and they were to lay down their weapons, they were not just to move on, but they were supposed to help make that nation they were just at complete odds with help them prosper. The peace that God offers, that Jesus is ushering into the world, is all about reconciling relationships that we are at odds with. And the holiday season is a perfect time to kind of talk about this. We are going into holiday season, for some of us, is to see family, some we like, some we might not be huge fans of, but we're able to rejoice in those relationships and the good times that we are to have. But for some of us, the holidays are the exact opposite of this. Time with or without family can bring up old wounds that have not been healed. Some of those wounds we, we may have been given, some of those wounds we may have given to others, or maybe there are wounds we have given to ourselves. For some, those wounds were purposeful. For others, they were out of anyone's control. You might be thinking that 
this year that Christmas is going to be peaceful because this person is not going to be here anymore. Thank goodness. Or it could be the opposite. Christmas will never be peaceful again because this person will never be able to be here with us again. You may have a wound that has been present for years or it could be fresh. And this is the season, the first season where you have it. One of the hardest aspects, and I do mean hardest aspects of this peace and shalom is reconciling relationships that have been dealt a very real and very powerful blow. But as Paul wrote, the peace that the Bible speaks of that Jesus is ushering in is a peace that transcends all understanding. It is no mistake that Paul describes it this way. God's peace is so overwhelmingly powerful that relationships that should be severed are made anew through the grace of God. So far we've seen that peace, shalom, is present during chaos. It is meant to reconcile that which seems unreconcilable. And finally, I want to talk about this idea that shalom, God's peace, is to bring wholeness and finality. In the text, this can be pretty literal. Uh, When King Solomon, the wisest man in the Bible, the son of David, uh, finally completes building God's temple in Jerusalem, he places the final brick into the wall, and it reads that he shalomed the house. He finished the house. He made it complete by placing that last brick. But the ultimate finality of peace is found in the person of Jesus. The story of God's people has been filled with ups and downs. If you hear last week, you kind of heard from Ben's sermon how throughout all human history, mankind has been grasping for some kind of hope in things like kings or governments. The text he read from was in Isaiah, which was in the later days of Israel's history. They were in the midst of fear and exile, political unrest. And he writes, as God's prophets looking forward, this in Isaiah 9, 6 to 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of the governments, and of the peace that there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. With our 2022 eyes, we read this and we naturally come to the conclusion of Jesus as this so-called Prince of Peace. That is a fair and I would argue a pretty accurate conclusion. But what I want to sit on is when Jesus came as the Prince of Peace, this Prince of Reconciliation, of wholeness, of completeness. He was not coming into the world to the idea of peace that they had. He was coming into a world who understood peace very, very differently. He was bringing the final and whole version of true peace. The people wanted Jesus to be the one to come back, take the throne, rule from the mountaintop, and overcome, overcome all those who were oppressing them. The irony is that peace would not be coming through a conquering general, but to a baby born in a manger, to a couple with very little means and very little social standing. 
God's shalom was brought into the world during a time when peace was understood as conquering and utter control. Born during the rule of the powerful Roman Empire, Jesus would bring a peace that was counter to what the powers at be believed. Rome was proud to proclaim and to boast to both its enemies and civilians alike, Pax Romana, Roman peace. This peace was not the peace of Christ. It was not based on reconciliation, on wholeness, or beauty. Romans regarded peace not only as the absence of war, but only obtainable when all opponents had been beaten down so much that they lost the ability to resist. Peace was only found when all opposition was wiped out. That was what Jesus was born into. The idea of peace is what caused the leader of Jerusalem, King Herod, to fear the news that the Messiah had been born. The powers that be were so scared of a baby that Herod ordered that all boys under the age of two born in the area were to be killed. In order to maintain peace by the world's standards, the powers that be wanted to tear apart families in order to hold on to the so-called idea of peace. Thankfully, Jesus' life was filled with examples of him bringing peace to a kingdom that had perverted the idea. Jesus came and gave people peace, made them whole through the healings of the blind, the lame, and the sick. He brought reconciliation to tribes and people who had generations of fighting and wars and made them whole. He told his disciples at the Last Supper, my peace I have come to give to you. His desire was to make whole the broken and shattered relationships that was between man and God, the horizontal and the vertical. Just as Solomon placed the last brick into God's temple, Jesus has come to make the whole relationship that was broken all the way back in the beginning by Adam and Eve. His journey culminated in Jerusalem 33 years after his birth, a city whose very name means the abiding place of peace. At the age of 33, the Prince of Peace walked into the city of peace. It wasn't until after his life that his disciples and people finally understood what Jesus' life was meant to be. As it says in Colossians 1, 19 to 20, for in him all the fullness of God was placed to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. All of history had been building up to the person of Jesus to come and bring true peace. The culmination of all that God had been doing had arrived in a manger. Jesus is what shalom, peace, is meant to be. The chaos in all its forms will be overpowered, that all relationships will be made reconciled through him, where the finality and wholeness of all that God has promised since the beginning will be found in this baby. From the very beginning of Jesus' life, he was defying expectations to what the world claimed peace was. It's not an over-exaggeration when I say the birth of Jesus is one of the most significant moments in the history of humanity, because it was the ushering in of the peace that God had been proclaiming from the very beginning. A peace that to every rhyme or reason does not make sense to us. 
a peace that in the midst of chaos is not overpowered, but made more miraculous. A peace that makes healing wounds that are very real, very deep, possible to be healed one day. A peace that makes the unimaginable a reality. For many of us, this peace seems unattainable. A feeling I have had and many mature men and women of faith will still have going forward. And as I was kind of praying and trying to figure out how, can, how do I leave this story or this talk with you today, a story came to mind. I'm a big fan of stories. Uh, one of my favorite uh, authors is C.S. Lewis, and he's just the guy who wrote Narnia. He's just able to, the stories behind things, they highlight things, they make things more beautiful, and they add depth and beauty. So I wanted to end with a story that picks, puts the idea of what I've been talking about kind of today in practice. A story of a man who has every reason to reject the peace that God had offered to us, but actually goes to Jesus in a time of utter chaos. This is a story of a man named Horatio Spafford. Alive during the 1800s, he was a pretty well-off real estate investor and lawyer. Unfortunately, he was a real estate investor during the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. So most of his holdings, most of his property was lost. Feeling a need to get away, Horatio and his family, his wife Anna and his four daughters, decided that a vacation would do them well. He planned a trip for his family to go across the ocean to go to England for a few weeks to get away. But due to a few pressing matters, he had to stay back. Uh, so he sent his family off ahead, planning to follow them as soon as his dealings were done. So Horatio's family set sail across the ocean. However, the ship was struck by another ship about halfway through and sank. The only surviving member of Horatio's family was his wife. He didn't find out about this until he got a telegram a few days later that simply said, saved alone, what shall I do? Upon receiving this message, he set sail immediately to comfort his grieving wife and along the way passed the very location of the worst fear of any parent took place. The captain of the ship had heard the story of him losing his family, so called him up to the deck and showed him, hey, here's, here's where it was. I believe to try to give him some form of closure. Compelled by his raw emotions, he went back to his room and to his paper and wrote this. When peace like a river attendant my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to know, it is well, it is well with my soul. From this tragedy, one of my favorite hymns was written. I do not share this story to tell you that you are weak in your faith because you can't imagine having the response of Horatio. I am telling you this because I believe that Horatio's peace was only possible because of Jesus. Something about this miraculous life of a baby born in a manger instilled in this man that in the midst of deep waters of chaos, peace was achievable. This is my prayer for all of you today, that we lean on Jesus to give us shalom, to give us peace, wholeness, completeness, relationships that are reconciled, 
because there's nothing out there. Even though they will claim to give you that peace, they will claim to make you whole, they will claim to make all your relationships right, nothing out there is like Jesus. He's the one who can truly give it to us. Join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we come to you in humble submission of your will, Lord. God, you are a living embodiment of peace itself. A peace that the world wants to push away, the world wants to redefine, Lord, but I, God, I pray that we know that you are the Prince of Peace, that you have come to give us wholeness, completeness, and reconciliation. And God, I hope we know that this does not mean that it's going to be fixed in an instant, that just because we pray harder or read more or do more, Lord, that all will be made right, Lord. But God, I do pray and hope that we know that you are a Father who gives good gifts and you give peace. And during this season, God, I pray that we rely on you. Maybe there's someone in our lives that we've called to mind that we've avoided, kicked out. God, I pray that we're able to find that relationship to be reconciled. God, I pray if we have chaos in our life, whatever it looks like, big or small, God, that we bring it to you, that you are God that does not get annoyed by our simple mankind issues, whether it's a family issue, work issue, whatever it is, God, and God, I pray we bring it to you. Submit to your will. And God, we just thank you for your son. A boy born in a manger to a couple who had no power, had no standing, that the world was changed through them. God, we thank you for who you are, all the things you do, the big, the small, the seen, the unseen. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We invite you to connect with us. If you'd like to give to this ministry, you can do so at welcometomosaic.com slash give. Have a great week!